welcome to the Nightmare Box Presents The Art of Wargaming. I'm Yaga Malark. And I'm Onishiro. And tonight we're going to be talking about terrain. Uh, but before we do that, we got to give you guys a warning. Uh, the weather has finally hit Montana. And uh, for anybody who knows anything about Montana, you know that uh, when the weather finally hits, it does come in with quite a vengeance. Uh, so we're both feeling somewhat under the weather tonight. So the energy might be somewhat different than normal. Um, <laughs> I just got done being sick. and But yeah, so we're, we're still going to try to keep it live, keep it fresh, keep it popping for y'all. Sorry, uh, guys. We're neither of us are running a fever. You will not get sick from this podcast. It's not contagious. We're not going to give your phones or your computer a virus, so just you and rest easy. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so before we get into talking about terrain, uh, I had a couple things we wanted to talk to you guys about. First off, um, I know we're always on this show apologizing to Kristen, our, our editor. You hear us talking about her a lot. I'm so sorry. But I don't think we've, we thank her. Or, or my, my uh, brother, uh, Brett, our, our other producer, nearly enough for the work that they put in over at Nightmare Box Presents. And I don't think that we've ever uh, brought up their show as well. They, they have a, an awesome podcast over there that is differently minded than ours. But if you are an artist of any stripe, um, my, my brother, uh, Brett, is a writer. He's a, he's a published writer. He's an exceptionally good horror writer. He, he does a lot of research on his stuff. He scares the bejesus out of me. And that's saying something. So I, I, he, he's very good at what he does. And then Kristen is a, a filmmaker. She does all sorts of things. She's done uh, horror work. She's done documentary film work. She's got her own uh, YouTube site, Kristen Pennington. Um, and then uh, the, uh, the Mad Men Diaries is my brother's book. Uh, but they've got a, a show uh, called Mistakes Were Made. And it is a really funny show. Um, it, it's a little bit different than what we do here, though. So just to give you a warning, on, on, on uh, The Art of Wargaming, we try to keep it relatively clean, relatively PG, because uh, we, we'd like this to be something that can be consumed by younger uh, people as well. Uh, my brother is... <laughs> he's so funny. He's but a he's, sweet man. But he's, but he's not... I, I wouldn't call him necessarily PC or or uh, uh, fit for... What, what's the... What's the uh, he swears. Radio. He likes to. He likes to. He likes to swear a lot, <laughs> but that, I don't necessarily mind that. And He's, if you're a, if you're a person that doesn't necessarily mind swearing or any or anything like that, it's an amazing show. Of, and they do interviews with uh, again artists of all stripes. Um, we're, we're talking uh, physical artists, um, writers, producers, uh, filmmakers. They 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 do all of it. So um, I highly recommend checking out. Mistakes were made. I listen to it uh, every episode they put out. So yeah. From what I've listened to, it's fantastic. Though not FCC safe, <laughs> yeah. absolutely great content. Yes, yeah. Uh, my it, it's it's a, a nice dichotomy too, because again, my my brother, um, he doesn't hold back, and he he says things like he he thinks them, and especially as he's getting more and more uh, inebriated as the show goes on, he becomes very much like some of his comedians that I know he listens to. Whereas Kristen, on the other hand, she is like this bastion of like reason and. Uh, Sensibility would be another thing I would describe. <laughs> so, like listening to them on the podcast together, I don't know. I think it's really entertaining, personally. Um, so, yeah, check them out. Uh, mistakes were made. Um, in in uh, news for the art of wargaming, though, uh, by the time this drops, um, I would have like I would like to release a video about the twelve shots. Oni and I spend a lot of time talking about these twelve shots, this form um, that we teach our students. 
and that basically all of Stygia practices. And when we're talking about this, there's two different forms that we're talking about. There's the 12 shots that were developed by Warmaster, excuse me, Sumatai, and then there are the 12 shots that were developed by Sir Kirian. They start the same, but have a kind of a, a different direction that they go. We want to do a video. That's the long and the short of it. We want to do a video yes. detailing the 12 shots so that if anybody wants to learn what we're talking about and use them for yourself, um, even though I'm not doing a whole lot of actual fighting these days, I still do the 12 shots every day, and it keeps my, my reflexes and my forms in order so that when I do go out and fight, my body still knows what it's doing. He um, stays sharp for sure. Well, you got to try. Yes. I can't get old. I'm only 32. I, I, I see uh, Piper out there. Uh, he's a BOF fellow from out east, and he's on the older side, but you wouldn't know it looking at the way he fights. Uh, nope. He's he's quite good, <laughs> and uh, I I want to. I don't know. I don't I don't want to be shown up that much. You know, even even though well, he's amazing, he's been fighting a lot longer than I have. I'm like I'm 32. I, I, the peak did not happen yet. We have not peaked. No, no, definitely not. And hey, you want to be there when you're his age, mm-hmm. and you want or better. You know, learn from it. Absolutely. Uh, I agree. The the 12. 12 strikes are great, yep. and it, it's nice. It'll be nice to to get a an eyeball on them and kind of understand the application of the weapon type and the the fighting style to the martial arts itself that applies to it. Well, because it can be used for any striking weapon. You can use Correct. it for a single-handed blue, which is any weapon shorter than 48 inches. You can use it for a two-handed blue. You can use it for a red um, or, or longer polearm, but the only thing it doesn't work for are stabbing-only weapons. Correct. Because uh, you can't strike them with the haft, not in Belagarth anyways. But anyways, we want to put up those videos for you. Um, I, I think that would be better to have a visual aid rather yeah. than trying to explain it. They're coming. Um, let's see, what else do we got before we get into the meat of it? Um, you guys, anybody who plays Warhammer will likely have heard of this by the time this podcast comes out. That being said, I have to nerd about it because... You know that I'm an AdMech player. You know I love these guys. And the AdMech, for the first time in the history of the AdMech, have a flyer. Ta-da! Yes. We got a transport earlier this year. I still have it in the box. I'm waiting to build it, but I, I, I want it in my army. Um, but we also have a flyer that can be a transport, a bomber, or a fighter type that's coming out early this next year, 2020. So I am stoked because, uh, again, I only joined in the 8th edition, but I've inherited the ad mech resentment for never having flyers or <laughs> <laughs> transports. Um, I mean, we can't have psychers. That just makes sense because ad mech doesn't do, use psychers. I can understand that limitation, but not having the other two has always been a real hindrance to AdMech players, and I am just stoked. I am I am stoked to see where this takes the AdMech meta. Um, I, I'm interested as well. And yeah. they look super, super cool. I, I think so, too. I love the design. It's so cool. I'm whatever. Well, it looks a little bit like something out of Dune, I think. But, yeah. like, I love Dune, so that's not a bad thing for me. And, and honestly, <clears throat> you can only use so many designs in the world before you start having elements that are copied. No, uh, I can't remember who said it recently. They said, all art is theft. Nothing, nothing is original. Everything is based on something else. Even this podcast, we're using the basis of it, uh, is it the, the writings of a, a, an actual strategist 3,000 years ago. Um, but it, it's just repeating the same ideas. So yeah, it's, it's like, all, oh, it looks like something about, else. Everything looks like something else. Everything does. It's all about execution. <laughs> That's it's right. how the brush strokes are painted and the different view and angle that each artist and creator gives to and adds to 
these creations. Absolutely. No, I dig that. But yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing what these can do. I, I haven't seen the rules for them yet, uh, but I imagine they're going to be decent because uh, you can make anything work. Um, I'm interested. I'm stoked. I'm just stoked. So I, I, got, I got some work to do over the next several months beefing that up, and I got to beef up my Death Guard too. That's a, a rant for another uh, episode, though. Um, and then for you strategy gamers out there, especially those of you on Xbox One, because I'm not sure if this has come out on PlayStation yet. Did you see it on PlayStation? I'm not aware, but I think it was full console release. It would make sense if it, if it did. Uh, Civilization, one of the best strategy games ever made, Sid Meier's Civilization, has for the longest time been relegated to the PC as its functional model. Now, they had a Civilization Revolutions that was for the Xbox 360. I played that to death, but it was so simple that if you figured out the right combination of technologies and the right combination of buildings to have, you can just about every time win against your opponent. So, like, I, I, it stopped being fun for me. But this Civilization is... It came out on the 22nd of uh, November, I think. And... It is all the things you want out of civilization, but for the Xbox. So uh, everybody needs to find me on Xbox and play with me because <laughs> I, I need people to, to play with. It looks fantastic. I hate to say it, but I'm definitely scoping out an Xbox. Don't right I, don't hate that. I love that. That's good news uh, for me. I know it is. I know it's good news for you, but I don't. Man, sometimes I don't like their their communities. But, you know, whatever, that's neither here nor there. I'm really interested in one of these. Uh, they have a melee 4v4, 5v5. Uh, it's kind of like a mix. In my mind, it's a mix between For Honor and, like, Overwatch. What's it called? Heroes Fighters. Oh, I'm going to be a really bad boy right now and just say that I don't remember maybe Bloodied Edge or something like that. <laughs> or something cool, something coming out that you want to sink your teeth into. And it's an Xbox PC exclusive. Um, or I could just grow up and get a computer, but, you know. You know, I my issue with having a computer is I want to have the funds available to be able to update it when it needs to because... Uh, there's always new cards coming out. There's new technology coming out that makes your computer better, better able to handle the new games that are coming out. And so yeah. to really be a good computer player, you have to constantly be updating your software. And I, I don't doubt my capacity to learn. I've just never been trained, and I am hesitant to go bumbling around an expensive piece of machinery with no real sense of what I'm supposed to be doing there. I... I would absolutely offer my assistance if you ever decide to go down that road. I can help you, but the same problem exists for me (laughs) as well. I have been out of the game so long. I used to be uh, IT. I spent a lot of time fixing computers, and I still can do a lot, but I don't mess around with Macs. I don't mess around with some of the newer windows and man they are out of control and i'm not so into it so i'm gonna have to like once i get i'm looking at a couple computers right now for art purposes word and i'm gonna just have to bite the bullet and deal with some new operating systems that i have been avoiding for a long 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 time well at the speed that technology is advancing right now i mean that's unless you're again actively in the field it's it's hard to keep up with it i mean i take take vehicles for instance when i got my very first truck um this would have been back in what 2000 and 
2003, 2004. It was like a 1990 Ford Ranger. Uh, there were like no electronics in the engine itself. It was it was something I could work on. I knew how to change the starter, the battery, the alternator. Like I, I, I could I could work on this vehicle myself. There was very little that I had to take it into the shop for. And most of my friends' cars were the same way. After I learned to work on this truck, most of these engines kind of looked the same. And so I could go and give advice to people, help them work on their cars with just a little bit of training I'd received from the mechanics who were in my family. But so I think it's somewhere in the 90s or 2000s, they started putting a lot more electronics inside the engines and putting things way more compact. And, and I think they started letting engineers and not mechanics design engines because things were suddenly in places that didn't make sense anymore, like a starter that is right behind uh, a nest of cables that's really hard to get at, and you're sitting there being like, I don't, I don't know how to get in here without specialty tools. I think that might be part of it. They're trying to make it so you have to have specialty. But I, but I haven't worked on my own car in a long time, just because they're too complicated now. Revolvers are cool. I like revolvers. As in like... <laughs> <laughs> Is it like the, the same the concept oh, yeah. exactly? Yeah, you know, they're like, you know, simple, yeah, like strong, reliable, reliable machines. You know, you start stepping into the world of semi-automatics with you know, gas-powered recoil, you know, prevention and stuff like that. There's a lot that can go wrong there. Oh, you know? yeah, and a lot of parts, you know, that can not going right if you have no idea what they are trying to take something apart and, uh, whatever or, or hearkening back to the days when I was really into paintball um, I had two different uh, paintball guns that I had and uh, one of them got a lot more use than the other and the one that I used more was the less expensive one because I had a spider and it was an electronic weapon I mean it was one of those like hair trigger things yeah. where you could do the flutter fingers and just <laughs> You didn't have to have it fully automatic if you could just yeah. do this motion. Nobody can see me, but I'm just, just fluttering my fingers. Bounce, yeah. Um, and, but there was so much that could go wrong with it, especially because we played a lot of woods ball. And yeah. so we're sitting there growing through the brush. Even just dew, even just some like morning dew getting on this electronic gun could cause it to malfunction. And so I relied far more on my trusty Tipman 98. T- yeah! <laughs> Which is the M... Uh, if, if we're going to compare them, I would say that my Spider was like the M16 of the, uh, the, the paintball world, whereas the Titman was the AK-47. The Spider may have yeah. been a quote-unquote better machine, but the maintenance that went into keeping it that way was so much more. The, the Titman 98, like an AK-47, you can drag it through a desert, through a swamp, uh, through a dirty industrial zone, and that thing will still fire just fine. Yep. <laughs> They are amazing pieces of machinery. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. This uh, this trend toward complicated technology that breaks easy, I, I wonder if we're going to see another side of that, you know, mm. in the next generation, people being like, okay, we need to go back to, to things that last and that people can work on themselves, you know. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. When I did my paintballing, I had basically a... <laughs> Cartridge CO2 pump action oh, Lord. Sh- shotgun. <laughs> I'd use maximum tactics to get people and yes, just you ambush. Would. So I was using like the M1 Garand of sure. paintball sure. guns. It was great. Because you know, like, oh, you'd hear like, and you're like, what the? What was that? 
That is obviously a terrible piece of nonsense 15 feet away from me that someone's trying to shoot. <laughs> is that an M1 Garand or is that a muzzle-loading musket? Pro- yeah, that, that. I would... It would be funny. That would be... That would be really funny. Oh, man, that... You get some way to reproduce the M1 Garand uh, magazine pop, you know, right. that... That's a cool, yeah, it's got a, a classic sound. Too. Yeah, absolutely. If you could just do that in the middle of like any, even an airsoft like fight, you know, Word. where some just people that knew what it was would just be like, "What the? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, what was that? I'm hallucinating." Actually, I, I, I even has, I, I have a paint gun, a paintball gun right now. I cannot remember for the life of me the model of it. But it has a very realistic sounding recoil, like it has mm-hmm. metal, metal bits in the in the in the action. Yeah. And so when it comes back, there's actually a metallic clank that make it's louder than any paintball gun I've ever had. But it is startling to anybody nearby because it sounds like a low caliber actual rifle going off, which is pretty Crazy. cool. It's not, it's not like a fifty cal. It's not going to tear your eardrums off, but it's right. definitely louder than most paintball guns. And I don't know if you're just trying to be the distracting tank of the team, which was honestly. One of the two positions I liked. I was a runner in those days, so I didn't mind playing flank. But if our sniper needed somebody to just draw the enemy team out, a loud weapon does that. Yeah. Oh, all right. So, you guys may have noticed, if you're following along in the book, that uh, the pages left are getting a little thin. We're coming toward the end of our adventure with The Art of War by Sun Tzu. But worry not, we intend on having this podcast be an ongoing sort of thing. Uh, but we're, we're curious about what direction to take. Um, I've read a lot of books over the years, a lot of military history stuff, and a lot of military science stuff, and I, I honestly think that it all could apply. And um, honestly, having a little bit of hard, uh, difficulty deciding the direction that The Art of War Gaming should take. And so when this episode drops, I'm going to try to drop a poll on the same day, uh, on the Art of War Gaming site on Facebook. And there's going to be four options on there for uh, the next book that we go into. Now, eventually, I want to share my plans with you all. Eventually, we want to uh, take this platform and start going places with it. We want to start going to more events, Belagarth events, uh, Dagger Hero events, even SCA events if people want us there. Um, and I want to start going to more Warhammer tournaments and provide you know, tactical on-the-ground coverage of what's going on in the meta, what's going on uh, in individual tournaments, who's doing well. You know, just, just kind of make this a more informative show in that way as well. Um, but until we're able to get there, we're going to kind of stick to this this book format. Um, so for the next one, I've got four choices here, and I'd like you, the listeners, to help us decide. Yay! Uh, the first one is by B.H. Liddell Hart, and it's called Strategy. It is a, a, an amazing book uh, written by a, a person who was there, who did it. it it's a more recent book uh, of the choices that I have here. It is the the most modern, I would say, uh, because he was writing during the, the World Wars era and writing about that, that style of combat that occurred there, which is honestly quite good for the, the sort of tactics that we're talking about on this show. Um, he has some a very good point. He, he honestly looks back and looks a lot at Caesar and all the other ones too. He has a, a very wide um, knowledge that he, he wants to share, uh, Del Hart does. So that's a good choice strategy by him. Very simple. Uh, there's another art of war that Oni and I were interested in, in looking at which is Machiavelli's art of war. It's, uh, not as well known as his book, the Prince, 
but uh, he approaches war as only Machiavelli could. And it's, it's not a very long book, but it is packed full of good information and a lot of uh, decent advice. We can also talk a little bit about Machiavelli himself, the fact that The Prince uh, was written as a satirical work <laughs> against mm. the Medici family, for instance. And we, could, we could go into some of that. So uh, The Art of War by Machiavelli uh, is another one of the choices. Uh, the third choice is On War by Clausewitz. Uh, Clausewitz was on the losing end of a war, uh, but he wasn't like the high up general. He wasn't commanding the or the armies. He was uh, one of the underlings, but he got to see the effects of war being lost. And so this book is supposed to be a preventative thing, saying, you know, this is how, this is how you win, so that you prevent these kind of losses to the state. It is a ponderous tome. I will say that right now. If you've, if it's currently holding up my bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the hallway. It is so large. Not an exaggeration. Um, but I would love to read it again, if that's something y'all are interested in. That would be a very long study, because the book itself is quite long. But um, if that's something that the listeners are interested in, I'm totally willing to go there. Uh, I am too. I think Oni is as well, yeah. I'm extremely intrigued at that angle. The fourth option, however, is uh, The Military Maxims of Napoleon. Uh, and this was his writings for his troops um, on, on how to wage war properly. Um, give it, leave it to somebody like a Napoleon to be full enough of himself that he really, really, really wants his own words to be echoed by everyone else. Not that he's wrong, mind you. He's just very full of himself. Um, but uh, some of these military guys tend to be that way. So, those are the four options. Um, like I said, we're going to leave it up to you guys to decide. If, if nobody disp- decides to respond right in or uh, attend to the poll, I suppose Oni and I will have to Rochambeau in some faction <laughs> over it. Um, but we wanted to give the, uh, the opportunity to you all to uh, participate a little bit in the direction the show takes. Um, yeah, otherwise... We're going to decide behind a curtain, and you'll have no idea and no idea why we chose. (laughs) Very mysterious. Mm. So, without further ado, we're going to get on to the chapter, which is, this week, terrain. And the first part of the chapter deals with exactly that point. Um, And there's six types of ground uh, that Sun Tzu talks about here, and we're going to talk about how those might apply in the wargaming sense, because they're not necessarily clearly defined, He's not saying this is swamp, and this is the plains, and this is the forest. He is saying, um, in classical Sun Tzu sense, he's hiding it behind metaphor and analogy. So, um, we're here to, to help decipher that a little bit. The first type of ground is passable ground. And he defines this as ground that can be crossed by either side um, fairly easily. He recommends that you should occupy heights, and look to your supply supply lines. I would say the passable ground is the vast majority of most Belagarth fields you've ever been on um, have been designed to be passable ground yes. at their core. Um, which is to say we're talking conceptually like grasslands, valleys, plains, uh, low rolling hills, uh, things that are not that difficult to maneuver over, not that difficult to see over, definitely not obstacles. Um, heights are still always an advantage. You always want to fight on the uphill, never on the downhill. Um, but I think he, he includes the, the mention about supply lines in this one because this is the, the type of ground where it's really easy to have your supply lines get pinched uh, because they're easy to maneuver on. It's not like you can put your supply lines or your, or your back 
to something that's highly defensible. Or I mean, he's saying to do that here. He's saying occupy the heights and do so, but it's easy not to. I think is is what the, what the implication is here. And again, we don't necessarily have supply lines in Belagarth or in Warhammer 40k, but a flank is still a flank. Uh, having people behind you is a force multiplier in of itself. We're going to be using that word to death tonight because uh, that's what terrain is. If you use terrain right, it can be a force multiplier. Yep. Either way, positive and, or negative. And on every field, there's always a more favorable spot. Again, this this high ground, it might not necessarily be actual high ground. It can be occasionally, but it could also be the part of the field where the sun isn't in your eyes, where it's in everybody else's eyes. Yep, because you're creating a slope, even if it's with light rather than altitude. It's the same exact effect, and that's the whole point of this, is that each of these ground types and terrain types reflects many ideas and concepts. Right, right. Um, yeah, so, and, and caution has to be used here, of course, because maneuver is extremely possible. Any Anybody who... It's it's not limiting. Just because your units cannot fly doesn't mean they can't maneuver here. Um, the, the nice thing about flying units in 40k is that they can get over nearly everything. But passable ground, they don't need to fly to be able to do so. Um, the cat is being, of course, exceptionally attentive because he's about an hour away from feeding time. So he thinks that right now is feeding time. So he's going to be a, a little star on the podcast tonight as usual. Um, oh, sweet Cass. Yes, yeah, and, and, and like I said, most of our practices, most of our events take place on this kind of ground. Um, and so it's good to practice on it. Uh, but it, it's also good not to become too wed to it. Um, I've, I've known people who are tripped up just by changing the type of ground that they're on. And I mean that in a literal sense. Uh, take, for instance, the fact that here in Stygia, we have a half-and-half half season. Half of our season we spend outside because Montana will allow it. Uh, half of our season we spend trembling indoors because Montana wills it. And the the time spent indoors is on a, a basketball court, uh, basically. It's a, an indoor gymnasium uh, in the university that we are lucky enough to, to be able to use during the winter. Um, well, not lucky enough. It's it's due to the hard work of the university students that volunteer with the club on campus there, keeping us active. So luck has nothing to do with it. It's our heroes there on campus. So uh, big ups to you guys for giving us some place to practice. So we don't get rusty. Thank you. In the winter, I remember for, uh, when when I first started fighting, we didn't have an indoor space. You just took the winter off, or if you were lucky enough to have a, a small space like a in a, a large enough garage or something to. Have some small some practices. One v ones. Yeah, you could maybe two v twos. Do some sparring, but um, yeah, nothing like we've got now. I our, our noobs now are spoiled because we just get to fight all year round. But that's that's a treat. It's honestly a treat. Truly, um, I. It's really weird for me. It's like going back in a time machine. I did one of my first martial arts, uh, taekwondo. I did entirely in that gym. Really? <laughs> yeah, years. It was fun. So it's it's like reliving, going straight back. I did judo in that gym, and so every time they yell at me for thank you, Cassius, um, for grappling in there, there's a part of me that's exceptionally oh. confused because I'm like, well, this, but this is where I learned how <laughs> to, to grapple. Why can I not? Well, we don't have the little blue mats down that make it safe to be grappled. That's why. 
Interesting. And mine's the exact opposite. It's a point fighting system. That's a good point. That's a good so point. it's the same thing. I'm used to the honor bound system of being like, oh, yep, that was good. You know, and oh, no, that was no good. And and all that. But man, I love those floors. They're, it's an old building and it has this really, really nice worked in like wood basketball floor. No, I, and, and I mean, it is exceptionally nice, but I remember the first time we moved indoors, I was one of the people that even threw a stink about it because at the time, I believe I was still in my barefoot phase. Um, ah, brutal. That's rough. And so if you're barefoot, running around on grass, that's not an issue. It, mm. it gives you Oof. nice grip. It gives you good dexterity. Mm. Yes, your toes are in danger of being oh. stepped on by large boots. No. But uh, you, you move indoors and, and try to go barefoot, you're losing skin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I stepped. I feel really bad. I don't like harming creatures. Uh, I stepped on a bee oh. once, twice on the same day. Oh lord! On the same foot, within a half inch of each other. Dang. Terrible. <laughs> the worst possible. Struck my lightning twice. Well, Luck. That, would, that would kill me most likely. Oh, gosh. But yeah, there are many reasons that the lovely feet that we use are terrible sometimes in certain conditions. Also applicable to today's chapter. Indeed, indeed. But yeah, so this is so on the subject of passable ground, it's good not to become too married. I guess the point to to one type of ground. If you really like fighting on grass, you're going to struggle more on dirt or or even to a gym floor <clears throat> if the situation calls for it. And vice versa is also true. Um, there's, I think there's some realms up north, um, and I know we're Montana, so it's weird to hear us say up north, but uh, Canada way, who practice almost entirely indoors. And so I, I wonder if they have a, a struggle sometimes transitioning to an outdoor environment that uh, has a bit more unevenness to it, hmm. or that sort of thing going on. So yeah, sorry, sorry to like beat a dead horse on that one. Passable ground is 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 fairly straightforward uh, in in what it represents. Entangling ground, on the other hand, um, is not quite as straightforward. He, he defines entangling ground as ground that is easy to leave but hard to occupy. And if you should try to leave it uh, to engage a foe. Uh, you're going to have an easy time getting there, and if it's an easily defeated foe, that's a good plan. But if that goes awry and you have to fall back, you're going to have a heck of a time uh, falling back across the ground that you just came across. So there's a, there's a couple of different um, examples that come to mind of this. I would say that uh, a heavily fortified location would be an example of entangling ground in that if you're talking about narrow doorways and passageways, uh, moving out of it to engage an enemy is much easier than trying to fall back into a castle, for instance. Absolutely. It's already been left. Um, other examples of entangling ground, I would think, would be uh, like a catacombs environment or a cave system. Um, again, And that's, again, if you're the one occupying it and trying to move out into the surrounding area, trying to fall back <coughs> into it. Bless you, sir. Uh, gosh darn it. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Like I said, feeling a little into it that this Montana is getting to us today. Um, but you had a there. Were, there was something else too for this when you had thought uh, like like a swamp swamps, lands, swamps for sure, heavy brush. Yeah, you know, even like a thickly forested area too. That's and that's key is is the type thick, thickly heavy, like dense 
difficult to deal with, you know, and people don't think about it if you're armored, fully geared, trying to move through areas like that, it's, so what, you have to clear, you have to clear the area, you have to clear a bunch of dead brush and stuff, what, so you're like, oh, fine, we'll just push a guy with a shield through first, <laughs> like, then everyone behind is struggling and, like, getting their gear caught and all this stuff, and it seems like a minor inconvenience, but in reality, if you have enemy spies watching you or tracking you and you're trying to keep a pace, that is murderous. It is. Um, yeah, and, 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 and just trying to, to keep up uh, and trying to keep coherency in entangling ground, like you say, uh, can be difficult. I've seen this on the Belagarth field in the forms of, like what you say, actual entanglement, like a thicket or, or a forest. Um, there's a, uh, a Sage Hill event down in Tennessee that comes to mind. They call it the Great Hunt. Again, no affiliation with the Great Hunt uh, that uh, is an organization separately. Um, but it, it, the, the park that they did it at, the one year I joined them, a gorgeous park, but had a bunch of thick blackberry or, or blueberry bushes or something like that on the property um, that were much easier to hide in than they were to come tearing out of because of the <laughs> thorns literally entangling, getting around you. I got cut up in that forest because I'm running around it thinking I'm in Montana. Uh, I'm like, there's nothing here that here that'll and uh, that'll get me. And any poisonous snakes, well, they just they'll let me know I'm there that they're there. Because the only poisonous snake in Montana is the the rattlesnake. Rattler, good guy rattlesnake sitting there just. Hey, you know, I know all my family will just bite you and leave you for dead, but I'm gonna yell at you first so you can please leave my area. That's right. But down there in Tennessee, they had like copperheads and. Uh, water moccasins? Water moccasin, yep. Um, I never got... I I think I saw a water moccasin once. I wasn't anywhere, like, necessarily near it. It was on the water when we were someplace, and it was, like, moving away from us. But I was talking to a local... Yeah, it was at, it was at Montgomery, uh, Monty Bell uh, State Park, uh, for either Equinox or... or um, <sighs> Beltane. And... We saw it on the water, and I was like, what is that? And they're like, that's a water moccasin. And I was like, oh, Lord, because <laughs> I had never seen one before. They're cool, though. Big. Much bigger than I would have thought. Really? Yeah. Because oh, I'm it. picturing something like like, like, like garter-sized like eraser. This big. No, it was monster. I mean, like, I, I'm not sure it was quite as big as a, a Western Diamondback, but it still was not a small snake. I would not have wanted to. But it was, it was very happy to be going the other direction, away from the entangling ground. <laughs> Snakes are sadly misunderstood creatures very often. Well, I think so, too. I think they're lovely. But um, in, in, in Warhammer, this entangling ground, uh, it also exists. It's not. I wouldn't so much say that it's forests in Warhammer because you can come and go from a forest terrain piece fairly easily unless you're a, a vehicle or something like that. Infantry can move through them with ease. Um and you can fall back into them fairly easily too. So I don't think that that, uh, that analogy necessarily applies there. But I, I think it would still apply for the heavily fortified location. Uh, again, you're trying to like get all these troops out, but then if you have to try to fall back into it in good order, it's that's it, yeah, trouble, nigh impossible. Um, so that's something to look out for. Um, is this entangling ground? It doesn't always necessarily need to be something physical, either. Uh, it can be a situation on the battlefield that if you if you move from a certain location, it disrupts the balance of power on the battlefield, if you will. Uh, a lot of times when I notice people on the battlefield, there's like a displacement of, of power 
around units. And unless somebody is actively moving toward other units based on their, their fighting prestige and their numbers, definitely, every unit kind of displaces um, a certain amount of area around them. And so you might be occupying, uh, occupying a fairly safe or a fairly entangled part of the field where nobody necessarily wants to move on each other. Um, but if you move out from that space and attack somebody, you better make sure that you can hit them hard because trying to move back after you've disrupted that flow, uh, other units might try to take advantage of that and, and hit you midstream. Uh, I know I would. <laughs> yeah, no, dude, that, that lines up with multiple things we've talked about sure. for sure. Sure. And I actually just had a terrible fever dream like thought that also uh, absolute worst case situation I mean no one wants to be in this situation if there are civilians around that is entangling ground sure because you cannot just obviously you can't kill them that's wrong in every way war crime they're not yeah well and that upsets moral compass you know Mm -hmm. to your enemy so you have to like move through them it takes time You know, they're panicking, of course, you know, in any kind of war situation, civilians are panicking. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish, you know, enemy, friend, foe, yep. So that slows everything down. And if you have to go backwards, you still have to go through all those civilians. You can't just turn around and then decide that you're going to mow a bunch of civilians down. This This is a bad plan to begin with. But... Exactly as you say, if you can get through and you can breach the civilians and the wave like goes away and you can successfully engage your target, then it could be okay. I could see that. I mean, the Imperium uh, of Warhammer would not hesitate to just mow the civilians down. (laughs) I mean, I guess depending on who is there, if there's salamanders, good guy salamanders, they might uh, try to to spare some lives. But Black Templar is probably just going to mow right through them because, you know a closest point between me, me and you, that A and B thing, and if you're between a Black Templar and his point B, that's uh, it's not a good place. The re-rolls on charges across the whole faction. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a good place to be. No. But yeah, so entangling ground, it's not necessarily bad, but it's just something to make sure that you're aware of. And again, it doesn't necessarily need to be something physical uh, to be entangling. Uh, so, so keep an eye out for it the next time you're on the field. Um, the third one, the next one we're going to go into is neutral ground. You might be saying, well, what's the difference between neutral ground and passable ground? That sounds pretty similar, but I, I think there's a, a key difference, and he kind of goes into it here. Uh, for one, he says that neither side can gain an upper hand by taking the initiative in this system, in this uh, situation. It's best to draw your enemy out to you and make them make a mistake. And so I'm kind of picturing neutral ground as being... Let's say you've got your force on a hill, and I've got my force on a hill, and there, we've got both got decently fortified positions, and there's this low point beneath between us. I would say that that low point between us would be that neutral ground, because going there first, taking the initiative, doesn't really pay for either of us. Whoever gets drawn out is probably going to be defeated in that valley first. Um, so yeah, and it doesn't necessarily need to be physical, I don't necessarily think. Again, if you're thinking in terms of the field, uh, if you're in a large unit and your opponent is in a large unit, that area between you um, might be neutral ground if you both have very good positions that are, are not good to assault. 
I've seen fields where both sides have some sort of some sort of fortification. I know Durdamarian does a, a castle battle at Equinox and Beltane where they build a massive castle out of like hay bales Ooh. and uh, some some wood and metal bits that they put on them to make them look actually castly. It's a it's it's really cool, um, but it's it's a good example of this that you get these these dead zones. Um, in front of the castle where nobody wants to go because I mean, basically if you're thinking neutral zone think like a DMZ all yeah. the guns are pointed there all the swords all the eyes all the arrows are looking at that neutral zone and to go there first is to draw all of that attention yep that I and mean, that was literally the phrase that I was thinking the entire time I'm thinking yeah. that's a DMZ yep yep there's yep. no reason for you to go and make an aggression and that's the thing is it's it's uh, definitely a counter-only type situation. Sure. Because it's not... The other one, you know, when you have passable, it's it confronts it by saying, taking these actions at this time can be, you know, positive. Right. Or, you know, if you do it in this way, it can be negative. So, where this one is just straight up, it's like there's no reason to move forward. Right. Because it immediately initiates combat it immediately initiates problem and it's you're not going to have any advantage under any circumstances yeah because you're not playing the circumstance to your to your betterment absolutely absolutely yeah um so yeah be, be careful of this neutral ground as well it, it can it can look appetizing and this is where the impatient will often find their demise is a neutral ground because uh, uh having to hold back having to show restraint in the face of an enemy that you really want to come to blows with can be one of the most difficult things that we do uh, as fighters on the battlefield. Trying to maintain that, that mental discipline in the face of what we actually want, which is the combat. But to do so wisely, to do so in such a way that gives you victory, um, there are rules. There are, there are ways of going about it. And rushing out into neutral ground, uh, like Sun Tzu says, isn't wise is not the way. I don't know if anybody's been watching The Mandalorian. I have. <laughs> Honestly, didn't know what Disney was going to do with the franchise. I was a little worried when Disney took over the franchise. I've seen The Mandalorian, and I... Uh, yeah, it's all right. Yeah. That's good to hear. I haven't touched it yet. Well, it's only on Disney+, Plus. so if you don't have that, it's hard to find. Um, but it's totally worth it. Totally worth it if you can find it. I'll have to check it out. So I think that's all to say on, on neutral ground, though. Um, again, it, it can be kind of uh, misleading, the fact that it's called neutral ground, but I think it's called that because it's be- between two like power-charged forces. So the ground itself is neutral, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's safe. Um, the next type, and this one directly relates to the battle that we've chosen for today in terms of uh, force multipliers and using terrain to your advantage, and this is the narrow passes. If that doesn't give away the battle, I don't know what will. Um, Sun Tzu uh, says that you should occupy these first and wait for the enemy to approach you, and that you should never attack an enemy who is fortified in a pass. Um, he was very right about that. <laughs> Period. Uh, so, and the idea here, again, this one's really self-explanatory. You're picturing an area where the terrain prevents you from moving to one side or the other, and you have to go through one direction, which in this case is called a narrow pass. Um, in terms of Belagarth battles, though, I think a bridge battle would also uh, 
fall into this or any or any battle that incorporates a bridge or any narrow choke points, uh, those could also be referred to as narrow passes, which is to say get there first, fortify it to your advantage, and then... Uh, let them fall upon your spear. Yeah, let they, <laughs> I like that. Let them fall upon your spear. Yeah, um, and this is and this is e- pretty easily done. Um, and you need to know you need to make sure that you're managing your forces right, though. Again, in in 40k, uh, it wouldn't be enough for me to just put a bunch of intercessors in a choke point and hope that they're going to do okay. I got to make sure that I've got some sort of melee back up there. Hopefully, a captain to give them some re rolls. Like there's still support that needs to go into this. A narrow pass does not just guarantee victory on its own. You still have to be a good fighter, a good uh, strategist in order to prevail. But it can take the forces that you do have. And, and make them seem like they're bigger because instead of your opponent being able to encircle you or, or bring a superior numbers to bear, they have to fight you uh, basically one-on-one. Uh, if, if you're imagining the pass is only, let's say, 10 people wide, that means at any given time you could only have 10 people standing side by side there, right? So even if you only brought 20 people and they brought 100, that doesn't matter because you can only fight 10 on 10 at a time. Force multiplier. Exactly. And if your 10 are better individually than their 10, then it absolutely can can play that out into a, into a longer match. And so, again, narrow passes are a very good force multiplier because they can take away that superiority of numbers that exists elsewhere. And it's very real. I You can see it in Belagarth in meat grinders, oh, in yeah. multi-man meat grinders or bear pits. Yep. You got two v twos, four v fours going. You will watch as a team of four or a team of two will wipe through the whole line twice. Mm-hmm. I've seen it happen. It's nuts, and it's just timing and and the numbers with the force multiplier of having your own natural backup to your left and right. Right. I, I, to to quote for honor, I think you'll like this. I had a, a match recently where I was using that Sunda character that I like so much, and we had hit the point where they had outpointsed us. It was a Dominion match, and mm-hmm. so they had broken the 1,000-point mark. Our team was, quote-unquote, breaking. We were down by, like, 400 points or something like that. I didn't anticipate us winning. And then nobody was communicating. Nobody had mics or anything like that, so it was kind of marvelous that this kind of came the way together the way it did, but we all decided to shore up on one objective. And we just stayed there. I think it was like objective A. Yes. It's, it's irrelevant. But it was one of the ones we could get double points from, from being on it. And the other team never managed to come at us in force. They, always, they were always coming at us one or two at a time. And so our entire team was there uh, massacring them. And any time one of us would die, we would just be rezzed by one of our teammates because there was enough of us there, they couldn't pull off an execution, and we would always win the fight, bring our teammate back, so the the breaking didn't really come into effect. And they could only enter this objective through one area, through one entrance on their side. And so they kept coming, they kept coming, we kept beating them, we kept beating them, until we eventually crossed the thousand point mark, broke their team as well, and then killed them. It's so fun. It was beautiful. I'd never done anything like that before in that game, and I'm just sitting there being like, oh, this is a cool last stand, and then we ended up winning, and I was like, well, last stand went pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's the way to do it, though. Yeah, if you guys can all mob together Mm -hmm. on one point, you can definitely defend, especially if their eyes for glory are too blind. 
Or they seem to be. Yeah, they they seem to be unwilling to wait uh, for everybody to be in one place to attack us in mass. I, I don't think they were yeah. communicating either, or somebody may have seen that and called it out. But yeah, we we managed to to use our force against them in that way and still win even though their points were far larger than ours at that time, and if we had, had actually you know, died, uh, our character was out of the match. It was pretty sweet. It was pretty sweet. And I think that's why these uh, principles are important. You know, I can, as a Kensei, take 4v1 on right. pretty reliably with my practice, and maybe so are some of these guys, but that's why you need to consider the ground situation, your opponents are entrenched in, doesn't matter how good you are at 4v1, if you're walking into their situation where they're fortified and ready for you, it's not a good idea. Especially if they have one character that's willing to go out there and sacrifice their life so the other ones can move on them. That's me, by the way. I'm the guy who runs out and I'm like, I'm going to engage <laughs> you and distract you and I'll definitely die, but everybody else is going to kill you. <laughs> but in this case... No death for you. That's right, because I get rezzed. So my character's just sitting there bleeding profusely <laughs> and being like, okay, who thought this was a good idea again? Oh, it's me. It was my idea. Okay, that's great. <laughs> I have terrible ideas. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say so. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. Um, we yeah. all have our moments. I, I suppose that's true. And if we didn't, we wouldn't be human, and this wouldn't be any fun. Um... But the opposite, so we're sitting here talking about these narrow passes, which is to say a, a constrained point between two unmovable features or, a, or two impassable features. Uh, the opposite of that would be the rugged cliff, which is the high point. And this is the, the pin... The, the pin um, I was looking for a word and then it escaped me. Pinnacle? Uh, pinnacle. It could be pinnacle high ground. Uh, quintessential is actually what I was looking for, Ooh. but I started using the wrong first letter and it tripped me up. Quintessential high ground. Uh, or, your, or your rugged cliffs. And Sun Tzu says the same thing about the narrow passes at first. He says you need to occupy them first and then wait for your enemy to come to you. But here he says if your enemy has occupied the rugged cliff, draw out this fortified army. Do not engage them up there. He, he makes sure to, to put that in here specifically. I think that, that, that uh, advice applies to just about everything he's saying about this terrain. You know, occupy the strong point, draw your enemy to you. Um... But uh, with these two, the uh, the rugged cliffs and the narrow passes, I think it's especially important. Um, and again, this, this rugged cliff, it doesn't necessarily need to be a mountain or other natural feature that is tall. It can be a tall building, um, even even a, like a built-up industrial area that, that lifts it up above other things. Um, yeah, yeah, but this one, I, I'm not sure if there's a whole lot of metaphor going on here. This one's just literally rugged cliffs, the high ground themselves, occupy it and draw your enemy away from it if they're there. Because mm. again, this, this, uh, the downward slope, um, you can hear my cat being fed in the background. Um, <laughs> I'll just wait a minute for that to come out. You happy? You happy, kitty? Yeah. Um, like we were talking about with the narrow passes being a force multiplier because it restricts the numbers, the, the physics of moving downhill, especially if you're if you're not actually in a game mode, so like Belagarth, Ampguard, Dagger here, we don't hit people in the head. But if you're moving at a downward angle in a real fight, their head is right there. 
You yeah. have to swing up for it. You don't have to make yourself open to hit them in the head, and that is a huge advantage in a real fight because the head, of course, is the center of not only all of your sensory organs, but the center of your being, the central of your nervous system, so it's, it's kind of important to keep intact. Just mildly. Uh, just a little bit. Just a little bit. So this this height advantage really comes in handy here because it gives it to you army-wide, and uh, the, the force is then with you as well. If you're thinking in terms of momentum, moving downhill you're, is a lot easier, because of gravity, than it is moving uphill, trying to charge uphill. So, um, yeah, uh, the, again, these, these rugged cliffs are fairly explainable. Uh, from a Warhammer 40k perspective, um, you don't necessarily gain a quote-unquote uh, momentum advantage from being up high, but you do get your choice of targets. You're often convert uh, a cover bonus if you've got like infantry up there or a properly obscured vehicle. Um, and then there's there's also the, the, the like I said, just that, that ability to shoot at whatever you want, and everybody's got to kind of keep cover from you, unless you've got a a force against you that does not fear your bullets at all, think Necron's dark, uh, Death Guard, high ground is a good thing to have. Man, I'm trying to think of more examples, and the only one I can think of is monkey versus tiger. Trees are the cliff faces that in this case. Tiger can definitely try to chase up the tree, but it's never going to get him anywhere. He has to lure the monkey down. That's right, because the monkey is way more limber up there. Oh, yeah. Uh, has has the advantage for sure. So you never, again, uh, I think one of the big points of this book is never play to your opponent's advantage. And if your opponent has the, the ground advantage, literal height advantage in this case, um, it's not wise. Now, it's not, I'm not saying that all tall people have a natural advantage because we have a lot of target space, but in, in this particular case, the, the ground differentiation does confer this advantage. So this one's pretty straightforward. I'm not sure yep. a whole lot of extrapolating is needed. Nope. Go high. Don't attack there, <laughs> though. Um, and the last one is separating ground. And this one, he says that even if you are evenly matched, you will find it difficult to come to battle in this ground. And if you do so, it will confer no real advantage. Um, and so we were, we were sitting here trying to think about the differences between like a separating ground and an entangling ground in terms of what it would actually look like. And we thought maybe urban combat would fit this. Uh, there's yep. there, like, unless you're specifically trained for urban combat, it's difficult. It divides your, your army. Um, it, it really confers no advantage to either side because everybody has conferred the same disadvantages by an urban combat situation. Um, you had had another example, too, that yeah. you brought up. A wide forest. So, yeah. like, no brush, like a pine forest. Or a lodgepole, pole, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and I think the reasons for that are that you have to... It's not like the entangling one where you have to fight your way back. Or, as you were talking at one point earlier, I don't know if we uh, got it in the recording, but caves even yeah you know that you have to traverse down there and then uh i like that one particularly because it really puts you in the mindset of how bad it is to go back right at that point right 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 how well do you know those caves from your approach in Mm -hmm. is there multiple paths are you going to get lost like at that point you should not be turning around and if you have to it's bad right where in this kind of situation, you got a cityscape, 
you know, rather than, like, a fortress, which has, like, designated paths that you have to go down, and there are going to be people in specific areas, in a city, no one gets an advantage. People are everywhere, you know, in urban combat. And same with, like, these open forests. People are everywhere. It's not technically hindering you, but it does impede everyone's vision. It impedes everyone's speed. Turning around isn't a labor you just but you still have to go back through it Mm -hmm. you still have to go back through the city you can't just teleport out of there you still have to walk in between the trees there's still obstacles you can't full bore out so like solid vegetation cityscapes even even if you're thinking like the i've seen some areas on the top of mountains where you've got like these boulder fields yes as you're moving through the boulder field it kills all sound divides you from anybody else who is there you're never quite sure of where your allies are or where your enemies are it's not it's not a very good thing and 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 sun tzu i don't think means any of these ground types here to be mutually exclusive it's not passable ground or entangling ground or neutral ground you could have ground that is both neutral and entangling you could have ground that is both rugged cliffs and separating ground. These two, these ideas can be used interchangeably. They're not pure in of to themselves. Like they're they're concepts in of to themselves, but they they obviously can mix. The battlefield is a very diverse, very chaotic place. You never know quite sure where you're going to be fighting in Warhammer or Belagarth, depending on where your event or your terrain is going to take place. Um, and so the again, these ideas can be used interchangeably. They can be used together, even, and and they can especially be used with the concepts that we're going to discuss next week in the nine varieties of ground, yes. um, which is different from what we were talking about uh, here today. Um, so that's the terrain. Uh, is there anything else you think we need to say on that? Well, that was it. All right. Well, we're going to move into the six paths to defeat, and then on to our battle. So these six paths to defeat, we're going to kind of go through them fairly quickly, but the... Uh, but Sun Tzu says that if a, an army fails, you can kind of look to these and say that the general did one of these things. He says that a lot. Um, but I really like this particular section because there's there's a lot of different aspects to consider here. And this applies... A, a lot of these apply a lot more to Belagarth than they do to Warhammer, at least in my experience, because I haven't been on a large national team in Warhammer and had to deal with the interpersonal stuff. Um, but of course, I've, I've been in units in Belagarth, so... Uh, it definitely makes sense from that perspective. <laughs> Not calling Belagrim dramatic or anything like that, but uh, all, all human institutions, anybody who points at one human institution or another and says that it's particularly full of drama or corruption or, or politics, I would just say, does it contain human beings? If so, <laughs> it will contain all of those things because that's it just seems to be the nature of humanity. But a general needs to be able to manage people and needs to be able to manage what's going on in their army. So these six paths to defeat, you want to avoid them, and we're going to go over them. The first one is flight. And this is if you have an otherwise equal army that is matched up at 10v1. So let's say that the, the, the training is about the same, the equipment is about the same, but they are massively outnumbered. And this is on like a tactical level. We're, we're talking squads, maybe companies at most. This is going to result in flight. You know, there's not a whole lot of soldiers in the history of the world um, that are going to march blindly into certain absolute death when there's something else they could be doing, like running. Uh, in Warhammer, your soldiers may do exactly what you tell them to do, but they're either going to get wiped out, or if they're not, they're going to get moral or morale checked out of that zone. So they're going to end up, quote-unquote, flying from there as well. So this this is a numeric advantage 
Because, um, again, people don't want to engage with a force that is much, much, much larger than them. They just don't. No. And it's bad as a general. It's bad management on, on your part if you allow that to happen. It's just bad. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> on on the bell field, it's just bad. When you have a group of, you know, a small group of, like, skilled fighters, and you're like, hey, we're in a bad situation right here. Let's just go ahead and, like, face check this monstrous group of skilled fighters. Right. It's never going to end well. No. And probably your group's going to just be like, cool, well, I'm going to go run that way and use my life for something useful. That's me, by the way. I'm the guy bouncing to go use my life for something useful. Hey, I'm I'm there. I'll take my friends with me. Yep. I'll take my cohorts with me. Let's get out of here. And that's why it's a flight instead of just, you know, a breakdown. Right. Right. And so to prevent this, obviously you got to make sure that the numeric factor isn't completely out of whack. Um, otherwise, you're going to have soldiers who are not able to cope with, with that idea. Even in 40K, this, I mean, I've, I've seen Space Marines be brought down by concentrated guard fire. The, the amount of weapons, the amount of bodies on the field can be more important than the skill of those on the field. It just depends on how you're using your advantage. Um, the next one, the next of these six paths to defeat, number two, is insubordination. And this results when you have strong-willed soldiers but weak officers. And, and this is the general's fault because who makes the officers? Who decides who's going to be in charge? The general. That's right. And so if the general doesn't appoint people to these positions or make sure that they're promoted to these positions who are capable of handling people and have the willpower to handle strong soldiers, you're going to have insubordination. I've definitely seen this in Belagarth. Um, you have to avoid favoritism. One of the, one of the biggest issues I, I see is people being appointed to positions of power or influence or authority, even in our nerd game, because they were so-and-so's friend or because they were part of such and such order, or because they're so-and-so squire or apprentice or, or whatever. It's nepotism, is what it is. And the problem with nepotism is you get this exact situation. You have officers who the people, the, the soldiers, do not feel qualified or lead to lead them, and they're going to talk back. They're going to they're gonna not do what they're told, and that is, I mean, that's insubordination right there. <laughs> Potentially to a disastrous effect. Right, especially if they just are at a point where they disbelieve their officer. Oh, I've seen I've seen units completely break apart because of insubordination, and, and awfully often we've we've talked about this concept of moral compass before. But if the general's moral compass does not align with the soldiers as well, they're also going to be insubordinate then too. And this moral compass isn't just how they're running the army and how they're treating the soldiers, but it's also how you treat other people. If you give me the order to fire upon unarmed people or to kill prisoners of war, me as a person, I'm not going to take well to that. That's, that's probably going to result in some insubordination because that goes strongly against my moral compass and against my, my sense of morality. And so, that again, that's, that's more insubordination from uh, orders that perhaps are corrupt. Weak officer. Weak officer. So even in this case, the general is being weak. Yeah. Um... So yeah, not so much for Warhammer 40k, I don't think, because like all of your dudes are just, they've got their assigned points. <laughs> so they, they either have a high leadership or they don't. They either have a commissar Ooh. ability or they don't. 
Um, well, you could instrue that as a weak officer placing the wrong kind of enhancements, modifications, equipment. Not bubbling correctly. Yeah. Correctly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that actually would be a, a decent analogy, actually. Yeah, so for 40K, your insubordination would result from uh, just having your guardsmen be way out and away from where they're able to receive orders or able to be hit by a commissar. Um, your space marines are away from their captain. Uh, your Eldar are away from their farseer, whatever the case may be. Uh, and it prevents them from functioning as the way they should. Yeah, I absolutely see that. That's a good analogy. Um, the next one is the exact opposite, though. So we were just talking about insubordination, where the soldiers are strong, where the officers are weak. Decline occurs when officers are strong and overbearing, but your soldiers are passive. So in this case, you've got a very motivated, like, uh, middle management section that's trying to, like, get things done, but perhaps being too strict about it or, or not letting people rest long enough or, or not instilling any sort of camaraderie in the troops. And, and the troops themselves just cease to function as well. Uh, I, I had something like this happen. Like, all throughout basic training, I got smoked. And, and for anybody who's not been in the military, getting smoked is not a good thing. It means you're getting PT'd, uh, you're getting some physical training, and you're getting a lot, mostly in the form of push-ups and or sit-ups and or flutter kicks, depending on what drill sergeant was yelling at you. But most of the time, the vast majority of the time, I could tell that the drill sergeants were just doing this, one, because it was their job, and two, because they were honestly trying to get me in better shape. They were honestly doing it for my benefit so that I could be a better soldier, so that I could perform my job better. So even though they were sometimes very strict, sometimes you could say that they were saying mean things, it was all moving towards this other idea. They, it, I, I didn't feel any personal vendetta in what my drill sergeants were telling me. Now, for about two weeks, we had a cadet who was attached to our unit from West Point. Now, this guy was so high on his own supply that it, I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. He was, he was very full of himself. He thought, he thought he was God's great gift to the army. And he was vicious about the way that he administered out smoking, PT. Like, you'd just be, you, you would have completed your stuff. You weren't doing anything wrong. Even the drill sergeants are sitting there being like, no, they're fine doing what they're doing. And he'd come over and, and I mean, one of the reasons that I got smoked, I, he was across the parking lot like on the other side of the parking lot talking to somebody else. I was on my side of the parking lot talking to my drill sergeant. And he came over to, the, to my side of the parking lot and he said, Private, you got to drop down and give me 20. And I was like, um, well, why, Lieutenant? Like, <laughs> I'm sitting there just like, because he wanted, he, he wanted to be called Lieutenant, even though he was just a cadet. Um, and he said it was because I didn't salute him from across the parking lot. There, there's no, like, if you come within a certain um, a distance of an officer, you're supposed to show them respect, you're supposed to salute. Uh, in certain training environments, in a lot of the combat environments, you're not supposed to salute them. And if they're all the way across the blessed parking lot, you're definitely not required to be paying attention to where they are at all times. But he smoked the bejesus out of me and one of my buddies. And my drill sergeant was sitting there the whole time. And, and of course, technically... This wet-behind-the-ears cadet outranks my drill sergeant. This drill sergeant who has done combat time. He had been a, a tanker, and he had been in the proverbial poop, as it were. And he was, a, he was a very tough man who knew his stuff, and when he told me to do something, I had faith that it was the right thing to do. And he's sitting there looking really irritated at this little cadet, like, 
prancing and doing these things. And so this, this cadet actually wreaked some havoc on our basic training unit for a while, um, and you saw a decline. There was an absolute decline in the performance of the troops. And our captain eventually got him reassigned to some other platoon, God help them, um, <laughs> But it was just one of those things where it was an absolute one of these things where you had an officer that was overbearing, who was who was just doing way too much, being being way too over the top with what he was doing, and he, and and the, and the troops, us, the troops were absolutely affected by it. Oh yeah, I was affected by it when in the first sentence you said West Point. <laughs> I knew exactly where this story was going. I don't mean I'm not ripping on the U.S. Army at all. I am an absolute patriot. I, I support the men and women who serve this country. And um, 100%. that being said, uh, some of the officers could use some work. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I'm not, I don't mean to say, I don't mean to say anything negative. I'm just saying that. It's very similar to the uh, service industry. I think some people should spend some time with boots on ground, do some customer service in a restaurant or something, you know. And I'm not saying anything against uh, schooled officers. You know, there are some great ones out there, but it happens in this environment that these people build their their entire career on this style with never touching boots on ground, with never getting actually involved in what they're doing, and it kind of warps their world and ends up warping the world's of those around them in a negative way. I, 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 absolutely. And, and like I said, even, even after I got out, I noticed it, uh, even when the officers don't seem to be pulling their weight and, and they, they seem to think they're above, like we'd get back from a field training exercise and we're a transportation company. So we would be hosing down all of the tents, hosing down all of the vehicles, getting everything cleaned, getting everything ready to go. Uh, and this might be in the middle of winter, very cold. The officers are all inside drinking cocoa you know, talking about how the, how the FTX went and we're all outside trying to get done so that we can get out of there. And we actually had to have our command sergeant major go in there and tell the captain and the lieutenant to come out and join us. <laughs> that was pretty funny. But, um, that was probably a sweet moment. It was a very sweet moment. But I say all this, but I want to bring it back around to saying that they're absolutely good officers out there. I'm not trying to diss all officers. Um, we had one who was green to gold. What that means is, like you said, he started out as an enlisted guy and then went through the steps to become an officer. And he was the best officer you could have. He knew just when to push you to get the job done. He knew when to give you a break because you couldn't take any more. He knew, he knew how to speak to people because he'd been there, he'd experienced it, he'd gone through all the same stuff. And so none of us questioned him because one thing he knew his stuff everything he talked about he had he had done that job before as an enlisted guy so when he said hey you need to do x y or z with this program because i was a transportation management coordinator i was like well absolutely you you <laughs> you got you you know how to do this obviously where where some of the officers they just it just it just takes too long i think sometimes the the uh I don't know. The green to gold program is a lot better in my mind. It, 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 for one thing, you don't get officers who are entitled. Um, but anyways, we digress. We're, <laughs> we're, we're digressing. So these overbearing officers they make soldiers passive, and that leads to a decline of the army. The, the next one that occurs is collapse. 
And this one occurs when your officers take initiative without your orders because of a personal affront of some sort. They decide to take the fight to the enemy without conferring with the main general first and making sure that it is good with the plan. Um, This one's fairly obvious. Obviously, not going to happen very much in 40k because your soldiers are doing what you tell them to do every time. But I see this happen in Belegarth. People will take an affront or need to go take on that unit specifically, and it leads down to a break. Because the, the power of the unit comes in the unity of everybody working toward the same plan. If everybody's working toward their own plan, well, you have a collapse. You have a collapse. It's in the name. Yeah. It's not even like there's no I in team. It's just straight up unit. Unity. It's so frustrating when people do not understand that they need to be working as a team. Yep. Um so yeah, and this can even happen at the at the at a smaller level too. If you've got like a four v four, not necessarily officers, and you've got a couple of people that just don't want to listen and want to do their own thing, it can also result in this collapse. So this the idea of cohesion, everybody working toward the same idea, is very important. In anything you're doing. Um, the next one is chaos, and this isn't the the fun kind with tentacles and and uh, gifts from grandfather. Uh, this is what happens when there's no discipline. There's unclear orders, no consistency in punishments and rewards between the men and the officers. And by men, I mean, like, soldiers. I don't mean the gender. I just mean, like, people, humanity in general. Um, And then the organization is also haphazard. Um, This one makes sense. It can occur in 40K if you don't know what you're doing with your army and you don't know what to put where at what time. It can occur in Belegarth if, again, there's no discipline and there's unclear orders and no consistency. It just results in chaos. Just it's a larger form of collapse, but it's it's everybody, everybody's in this going on. Also pretty straightforward. Um, and the last one is a lot like a flight, but it's where if you're thinking of a flight being a individual or a small unit, uh, a route is on the army scale. And an army occurs if you've engaged in uneven and did disadvantageous matchups. Um, so like everything has gone wrong you've put your, all your best shieldmen against the enemy's best red fighters you've thrown your Florentiners at the enemy's yeah. archer line um, your spearmen are all out in the open without any sort of protection Like all, all these things are happening and it leads to a rout which is another fancy way of saying defeat hmm. the worst kind with your enemy at your back that's right um so yeah, this is, again, you're, you're not using your units right. Maybe you're, you're putting your um, ranged units into melee combat for whatever reason. You're trying to keep your melee units out of combat for whatever reason. This is just not working, and your enemy is able to take advantage of it and, and wrap you up. Maybe because you didn't pay attention to terrain situations. That's right. That's right. Or to, the, uh, to some of the other passages. Again, these aren't mutually exclusive. You can have several of these occurring in an army at the same time. But Sun Tzu says very strongly that they are all the fault of the general. So flight, insubordination, decline, collapse, chaos, and rout are the six paths to defeat to be avoided. Fantastic. So before we let you go, we're going to do the battle like we like to do. And... Uh, and we're trying to get through it quickly because we keep exceeding our time. Brother, I keep exceeding the time. I'm a very chatty person. Um, I don't help. <laughs> so, if you haven't guessed it already, by us giving it away at the Narrow Passes, our battle today takes place in 480 BCE, in either August or September. It's hard to be certain with calendars changing like they do. And it took place in Greece, at the Hot Gates. 
Of Thermopylae, yes. Anybody who has seen 300 is suddenly going, ah, I know what's going on here, I can turn off the podcast. But wait, you'd be surprised to know, perhaps, that 300 got a few of the facts wrong, or perhaps construed the facts with others that occurred in the same historical period. So today, here on this show, we're going to talk a little bit about Thermopylae, about the historical context thereof, and kind of uh, what occurred there. Um, For the actual details of the battle... You know a lot about that already. You know that there was a smaller number of Greeks that stood against a larger number of Persians, and that 300 Spartans held the line. Well, it was larger than that. The Greeks actually had about 7,000 to their to their name. That's the modern estimates for the combined Greek force. And that wasn't just um, Spartans. That was Athenians, that was Thespians, and I don't mean actors, I mean the from the Greek city-state. Um, they also had the Helots, which were indentured servants, and uh, there were some Thebans there as well. So there were 300 Spartans, but there were also a lot of other in this allied force that were coming. Now, Xerxes of Persia had anywhere between 70,000 and 300,000 troops. So still, a whole lot of troops coming in there. Uh, You might notice, if you've read Herodotus, that these numbers are off from Herodotus, or rather, that Herodotus is off. Uh, As a historian, he's very good for getting the general idea of what went on, the people, the places, the things, all that. Um, But when it comes to numbers, when it comes to specifics and details, Herodotus is well known for embellishment. but, and so, like, for instance, Herodotus said that there were only 300 Greeks, or uh, roughly 2,000 Greeks, and over 2 million <laughs> Persians. <laughs> um, but that, that just, with, with, with the numbers that we're looking at and archaeological evidence, it just couldn't have existed on that scale. It's known how historians, uh, you know, like to uh, sow the tale you know, well, only recently has has history reached a scholarly point where people seem to strive for truth. For most of history, it has been used as either a propaganda tool, or no, mostly just a propaganda tool. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's been changed to suit whoever's trying to use it. Um, we have a lot of people now who are trying to to approach history with a unjaded view, which is very nice. But uh, back to Thermopylae, real quick. Um, so the background on this this wasn't the first tangle that Persia and Greece had had. Um, Years before, Athens and Eritrea had aided an unsuccessful Ionian revolt um, in the west of this Persian empire. Now, the Ionian revolt, if you want to think about, like, Greece being on uh, its peninsula there, uh, the Ionian area is directly across the Aegean Sea, so think Troy, uh, that sort of area. These city-states belonged to Persia, whereas Greece was still, quote-unquote, free. Um... So they were they aided this unsuccessful rebellion. Now Darius, who was the king at the time, um, there was a lot of revolts going on. He had come to the throne. Uh, he was called a usurper. Let's just put it that way. He'd come to it through some fairly shady means, and um, had uh, and and so he was dealing with a lot of revolts and a lot of internal tension in his empire already. So he vowed vengeance on the Greek city states, Athens in particular, um, and he intended to punish them. He was the one, not Xerxes, who sent emissaries uh, demanding of the city-states that they give uh, offering of earth and water. If you recall this in the movie, it was uh, Xerxes who is said to have done this, but it was actually his father Darius, um, as, a, as a sign of supplication, as a sign of their submitting to the Persian Empire and to the, uh, the, the structure that they had going on as the vassal state. 
this next part is true in the movie. The uh, Spartans put the emissaries down the well. I don't know if Leonidas Lion kicked them into the well, but I do know <laughs> that they went into a well. Athens uh, put them on trial and then killed them, but uh, Greece sent a very <laughs> strong message back to Persia. We're not animals. <laughs> we'll put them on trial first. That's right. Then that's, we'll throw them in the well. That's right. Um, so, uh, Persia came in force. Darius raised a large army and came to... It was the first Persian invasion of uh, Greece, and it resulted in the Battle of Marathon, where the Athenians won. We might go into that battle in more detail in a later episode, but let's just put it this way. The Athenians were outnumbered. They played their cards right, used terrain as a multiplier... <laughs> And won the day. So, Darius returns back to his empire, defeated, vows to come back and make uh, Greece his city-states, or uh, his part of his empire again. He dies before he's able to do this. Xerxes then comes to the throne. Now, Xerxes, you all know from the, the show, um, he's depicted in that show very different than history depicts him, however. Um, he was dealing with a lot of stuff. He, he very quickly dealt with a revolt in Egypt, um, and shoo- showed himself to be a very good bureaucrat, a good maneuver within the system, uh, and a good ruler. Um, he he seems to know uh, to have known how to get people to work together and how to get supply trains to work because he got an army together way faster than should have been possible and got it rerouted all the way up to Greece, which was a logistical feat in of its own. He showed a huge amount of skill in being able to pull just that off. And then the pontoon bridges that were used to cross large bodies of water to actually get into Greece were a feat of military engineering kind of unseen in that age. What? Yeah, he constructed these massive pontoon bridges that his forces walked across. And we're talking pontoon bridges that were able to support not just infantry, not just cavalry, but also elephants and the other things that he would have brought with what? him. What? Yes. I never knew this. Yeah. Xerxes was was a, was very good at what he did. That is some legit tactic. Mm-hmm. So he brought a massive force to bear in very little time. And it wasn't just land forces. He also brought a very sizable navy as well. So he intended to fulfill his father's vision of conquering all of Greece. Um, of course, the Greeks had a different plan, as they often uh, would. Uh, there was an Athenian general by the name of Themistocles, and he suggested that an allied force um, move against the Persians. And so they moved to block uh, a, a area, a strait, uh, on the ocean to keep the fleet busy in a way, where at the same time they moved this allied force to Thermopylae, which they knew was a natural choke point, a natural narrow pass in the landscape that they could use to their um, to their advantage. So that's kind of the background of what was going on there. The battle itself, you know what happened. It only lasted for a few days. Um, the force of Greeks were doing an exceptionally good job at holding off the Persians. Um, It wasn't looking like the Persians were going to be able to break through. Uh, And then the the treachery happened, Um, F-E-L-T's, who I don't think in history was probably a hunchbacked, um, mutated person. He was was simply a a traitor um, to what was going on, uh, showed the Persians the, the back path, the goat path through the mountains. Um, and the Greeks got word of it. And at this point, um, this is when 300 Spartans decided to stay behind and defend the hot gates while the rest of the Greeks fell back 
to to go get more troops from their city states and engage in more favorable ground because now the narrow pass had been eliminated. Now their enemy occupied the heights and was coming around from behind. Yep. But it wasn't just 300 Spartans. It was 300 Spartans, 700 Thespians, and they estimate about 900 Helots and three and 400 Thebans, though most of the Thebans surrendered. That was what held. So it wasn't just 300 Spartans. It was still a very small force compared to the 70,000 to 300,000 that we were dealing with on the Persian side. Um, and it was still a very heroic last stand. And it gave the, the Greeks time to build up another force and kick Persia out for good. Crazy. I can't... I can't believe that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, the, the real takeaway from this just like the movie showed, and that's why I think if you, if you... Again, the details of the movie are off. Uh, Persia did not possess mutant uh, sorcerers or um, whoever the one dude was, the, like big ogre-looking fellow. Yeah. I, I doubt they had him. Um, but they did have a very good force uh, that was drawn from all over the Persian Empire, which was gigantic at this point, um, that was held at bay quite effectively through this narrow pass idea. In two different places. Again, it happened to the ocean as well, where they were they were defending the strait against the Persian navy as well. Kudos on having the ability to transport your huge on-foot army plus huge on-foot mounts across, you know, an amazing amount of treacherous water to make these uh, advancements. But he was totally blinded by the situation by the loss of his father and he completely misjudged the strength of his opponents the terrain that he was trying to march upon and his dad helped him out by messing up the moral compass for an entire region by sending out that kind of ambassador or you know will call Uh, no doubt the the emissaries that uh, Darius sent out uh, galvanize the entire Peloponnesian region into action. Um, I mean, before that, again, at Greece, when we talk about Greece, it wasn't a united place, uh, not for the longest time. Alexander had it united for a little bit. Right now it's united. But the time frame that we're talking about, all of Greece was divided into these individual city-states that had their own agendas, their own plans, their own alliances with one another. Um, so to make them come together like this to fight a common foe, yeah, Darius definitely uh, made a mistake by giving them a, a common ground to stand upon. Especially when they got Athens and Sparta to agree to something. That didn't happen very often. Uh, 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 <laughs> no. <clears throat> All right, so that was Thermopylae, and I we've talked a little bit about the terrain, these ideas of passable, entangling, neutral uh, ground, as well as narrow passes, rugged cliffs, and separating ground. Uh, we've discussed the six paths to defeat, the ideas of uh, flight, insubordination, decline, collapse, chaos, and rout, and the, the mistakes that a general can make to make their army come to these points. And we talked about the Battle of Thermopylae, which I think really in, uh, illustrates this idea of uh, force multipliers and how they can be used uh, to the benefit of a smaller army um, against a larger f- a foe in such a way. And I really liked your take on it because you were really getting to the in-depth reasons why these mistakes are being made. And, you know, instead of just, Oh, they were trying to, they were, they got bottlenecked like, sure. Yes, that totally happened. But the entire situation was caused 
by all of these factors. There's always more than one thing at play. There's always more than one thing that leads to victory or defeat. Um, it's funny you say mistakes were made because before we go, I just want to plug <laughs> that show again. Uh, go check it out. It's uh, it's on all the all the stations, all the channels that we're on. Um, and if you if you're an artist and you and you enjoy a good bit of humor. Um, and you want to learn how to make your craft more effective, uh, Kristen and Brett are, are very good at what they do and are very knowledgeable in their subjects, and, and I highly recommend the show. Um, we have an Instagram. I've been talking about it a lot, but you can uh, absolutely come see us, Art of Wargaming Podcast. Uh, I try to post a lot of individual uh, or, or, or unique um, paint jobs on people's armies and garb choices, fighting stuff from here locally. Uh, so you can you can kind of see that if you want to submit anything to that we have an email art of wargaming podcast at gmail.com I would love to see your garb kits your armies uh, your your awesome battle photos uh, we will absolutely promote you on our site uh, we would love to see it um, and we're also on Facebook uh, the art of wargaming say hello yeah uh, come see us so next time we're going to be talking about the nine types of ground which is different than what we were talking about this week, I promise. So please come back. We're not just talking about the same stuff over again. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you got anything else, Tony? I'm about to suit up and ride out into the white wilderness. Yeah, good Lord. You, you, God. He's, he's, he's so... He rides his bike in the winter. Yeah, I can't help it. I know, it's... but it's just... It's so hard. And I don't mean hard isn't, like, difficult. I mean, like, you're hard, man. You're hard, man. It's part of my DNA. I dig it. I'm a cyclist at heart. I just can't stop riding the bicycle. Bless you. Hey, you Albert Einstein? Albert Einstein? Yeah. You, you know what he said the greatest invention of our time was? What was that? The bicycle. The bicycle. Yes. Not uh, not electricity, not nope. splitting the atom. Nope. Bicycle. Bicycle. Well, on that note, I think uh, this will be Malark. <laughs> and Oni. <laughs> signing off.